0: from covenant life fellowship for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons events and news please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com thank you for being here my name is dave york i'm the senior pastor here it's my joy uh to get to lead this church and be a part of this church and um So glad to be with you this morning. So the rumors were the rumors are not true. It was not 100 degrees at camp out. It was 113, right? It was hot, right? But let me tell you, we had a great time. We found a great like, I mean, a heavenly spot in a a creek. And we just could plop our, our chairs in the creek and sit and it was amazing, right? And, uh, so we had a great time. Dan Reeves taught yesterday. We had a great church service with about 85 of us down there. Uh, one of our thoughts was we, uh, originally with signups, we had about almost 200 people sign up for church camp out. So one service seemed like a great idea. And then, uh, many people, cause of the heat, obviously decided not to go. Um, and that made one service seem like not so great of an idea. So we just stuck with it anyway. If you're fanning yourself, I've tried to get the thermometer to go down below 68, it won't for some reason, but it's way better than 113, all right? So we just, it's all grace anyway, right? So uh, we're really glad to be together today, and it's fun to be together in one service. Let's open our Bibles. We're going to go to Romans chapter 7, is where we're going to be this morning, Romans 7, as we continue our study through Romans 5 through 8. Uh, Several years ago, a famous comedian said that the great problem with humanity Was guilt. Uh, He famously made this comment don't take guilt trips. Take a trip to the mall, to the next country, to a foreign country, to another county, but not where guilt is located. In his mind, guilt trips were found in places where law was given, where commandments were given, where rules were. And, and in some in our culture have taken that so far to say that religion is the great evil of our time. Because religion is what has created law, and with law came guilt. And so today in Romans 7, we're going to see something a little bit different. We're going to see the real problem with humanity. And the real problem with humanity is not religion, and it's not law. It's actually us. And Lord willing, what we're going to see is the only hope that we have in this life and the next is our union with Christ, being united together with Christ in faith that he is truly the champion and savior of our Souls. And over the past few weeks, we've been studying Romans 5 through 8 in a series that we've entitled United with Christ because we really felt strongly that we should talk about what this means. What does this mean for the Christian, especially as we navigate through this constantly changing culture that seems to be becoming where Christianity is no longer on the inner circle where we can answer some questions and kind of direct traffic. Now we're on the outside of the culture looking in and people are looking at us in ways we never thought Imaginable, And so we thought, thought we'd talk about this, and we've seen some remarkable things. In Romans 5, we studied that we died to Adam, our first father, being our disobedient representative before God. And Christ, in faith, has become our perfect representative before God. And that God's gift of grace to us is that God accredits or gives to us, accounts to us, Christ's perfect obedience before God to our, to us, as if we perfectly obeyed God. It's an act of God's grace that He did that freely. And now in Christ, we have peace with God and we have access to the glory of God. In Romans 6, we saw that when we trust in Christ, is that as is, as our faithful representative before God, and as we trust in His righteousness being given to us by God's grace, that we have died to the power and penalty of sin. Meaning that sin no longer has authority in our lives. And death no longer controls our eternal destiny. Aren't you glad about that? That literally you can look death in the face and say, as the Apostle Paul did in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh death, where is your victory? Oh grave, where is your sting? We are raised with Christ to live in a brand new way with a future hope of eternal life with Christ, our Savior. In Romans 7, as Perry began to open it up last week to us, we saw that being united with Christ means that we have died to the demands for perfect obedience to God's laws. And we've died to the condemnation of that of those laws when we don't obey God perfectly. Christ was perfect in his obedience, and in Christ, when we're in Christ, so are we before God. In Christ, we have been set free from the law. You know, notice in Romans 7 something fascinating is that we died to the law, the law didn't die. It's still alive. It's still active. But we died to something of the law. See, in Romans 5-7, through we have seen something fascinating about our union with Christ. We have been set free from the power and penalty of sin. It means that sin doesn't have any dominion over you anymore. It means that you can say no to sin. It means that when you die, you know that if you die, when you breathe your last breath, that you in that moment, you'll be transported to be present with the Lord. It's a remarkable thing. You will not be sent somewhere else, thank God for that. It means the presence of God. It means that we have been, we've been set free from God's demands for perfection because we're now united to Christ by faith. Just think about that for a moment. As a child of God in the class of God, you always have an A. Now let that settle in your heart for a moment. God does not treat you with some underlying frustration. He is not moment by moment waiting for you to finally blow it so he can act with impatience toward you. If you are a child of God who has put your faith in Christ, sin no longer has authority or mastery over you. God's anger is no longer aimed at you, and listen to this, never will be. And you don't have to be perfect for God to love you. All because Jesus was perfect on your behalf. He satisfied the wrath of God by dying in your place. And he rose again from the dead. And when you put your faith in Christ, God sees you having a relationship with God that Jesus has with God. That is simply remarkable news. There is no greater news in the universe. This is the greatest news. This is not just the good news. This is the greatest news. That though we were separated from God because of our, our sin before God, the God of the universe, because he loved us, had mercy upon us, satisfied everything that needed to be done before God in Christ, and when we put our faith in Christ, we are as united with Christ as if we're standing before God with Christ. That's how God sees us. That's remarkable news. Do you understand now why he will hold you fast? (laughs) See? And yet, even though that is true, you feel something in you every day of your life that you struggle with, indwelling sin. Don't you feel it? Without raising your hands? How many, of you, how many of you sinned this morning on your way to church? I said, don't raise your hands, right? I mean, right. right? We all feel the urge in our hearts to do a variety of things to take revenge on somebody who hurt us, to speak ill of somebody when we're a little jealous of them. To do things we know that don't please God. To look at things or watch things that we know that isn't good for our souls. We all struggle with sin in a variety of ways. And yet the truth of the fact remains, in Christ, we have died to the power and penalty of sin. But the presence of sin is still very, very active. And it will be as long as you live in this Genesis 3 world that you live in. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at this battle that we see in our souls about indwelling sin, yet being people at the same time who have been freed from that sin's authority. What what is happening here in this? Because some questions that have come up from our series has been, okay, so if the power and penalty of sin is something that God has dealt with, and I've died to that, why do I keep sinning? Why is it going on all the time, right? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning. And here's what I hope we'll see. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline or a bulletin. On the outline, there's not a big idea because it's just a blank sheet. There's normally a big idea, but this is the big idea, okay? And we'll leave it on the screen there for a moment so you can write it down. It's also going to come up after the verses are up too. So if you miss something, you can get it. Here's what we're going to look at this morning. The law of God reveals the character of God and our sinful nature. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. Pretty simple. The law of God reveals the character of God and our sinful nature. Our only hope is Jesus Christ. So stand with me. We're going to read Romans 7, verses 7 through 25. And then we'll pray together. And we stand in honor of God's word because we believe it is it is inspired. It is true. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for correction and teaching and training in righteousness. And we want to hear what God says. Romans seven verse seven. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, "You shall not covet." But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin dies. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed, and through it killed me. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us such an encouraging passage of scripture, whereby we see the daily struggle that we have, and thank you that this is another reminder of the fullness of the power of Christ. That though we live in this world, we are not dominated by sin. And though we struggle with sin, Christ's forgiveness and his offer of sacrifice for our lives is over us forever. Forever. And you will empower us to change. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You Be seated. Now, after reading that lengthy text, here's what, again, I hope we will see from the big idea. The law of God reveals the character of God and our sinful nature. Our only hope... Is Jesus Christ. Now let's start by looking at the law is good. That's the first point that I want to notice from the text that you're going to see this morning. Unlike George Carlin and some in our world, the Apostle Paul does not think that laws, commandments, or rules are bad. Instead, Paul believed that the law was good. And he talked about the law, and when he talked about the law, he specifically talked about obedience to God's law. And these laws could be as simple as the law that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden to not eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. All the way up to the law that God gave to Moses in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Behind all the laws of God, there was an implied understanding that God demanded perfect obedience And obedience brought life and blessing, and disobedience brought death and consequences. Yet Paul in Romans 7 begins Romans 7 with a fascinating discussion about being dead to the law, dying to the law, and being released from the law. He said that in verse 4 and verse 6, which means we have been released from the demands for perfect obedience because Jesus perfectly obeyed the law in our place. This is why Jesus said he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. See? Jesus came to perfectly obey the law and fulfill every part of the law so that you and I, who can't, don't have to do that to be right with God. We're made right with God through the works of Jesus' perfection. But this left a question in people's minds who were reading this, okay? So Paul, if that's true, that the law, we're released from the law and we died to the law... Does this mean that the law was bad? Did God make a mistake in giving us all these laws that we see? Does this mean that, that it's sinful, that we something about the law is wrong? And that's why Paul starts verse 7 and verse 13 off with similar questions. Notice the question. Verse 7, is the law sin? Verse 13, did the law bring death? See, our assumption in our world of Christianity currently is we are no longer under law, but we're under, and you know the term, we're in a graves. And the thought is, the law is what brings death. Paul's going to show us it's not the law that brought death. It's our sin that brought death. And so the problem is not the law, the problem is our sin. So Paul's answer in these questions is emphatic by no means, meaning an exclamation point. There's no way. This is impossible. The law of God cannot be sin. And he tells us why in a couple different ways, because the law does some things that are good for us. You'll see this very clearly in verse seven, that the law shows us what sin is. Paul used the sin of coveting as an example of this. Yet if I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. The law of God simply shows us what is right and wrong. It reveals to us how we should treat others, how we should speak, how we should act, the right way to do certain things in our business dealings, and our personal relationships, about the kinds of things we should think about. Without the law of God, we would never know what pleases God. We would never know what is right and wrong without the law of God. But the law of God also reveals to us the character of God, because he's the author of the law. Notice how Paul summarized his thoughts about the law in verse 12 of chapter 7, when he said this, The law is holy, it is righteous, and it is good. Now all those character traits are character traits of God. And it would make sense that if God is holy, righteous, and good, that he would give us laws that are holy, righteous, and good. R.C. Sproul put it like this, the law reflects the will of the lawgiver. And in that regard, it is intensely personal. The law reflects to the creature the perfect will of the creator and at the same time reveals the character of that being whose law it is. The law of God proceeds from God's being and reflects God's character. So in other words, to question the law's goodness or to question the character and quality of the law is to question the very character of God. God is the author of law, therefore it cannot be sinful because God would not author sin and it cannot bring death because God does not do that. He gives us law to bring life. So law is good. It is intended for our good. It shows us God's character and God's heart toward us. It's given to to us for life, not death. It's given to show us what is right, which in return shows us what's wrong. So God's law is good. But the question is, why do we still feel guilty? If God's law is good, why is it when I read God's law, I feel guilty? Right? Why is it that I I read Jesus' words about, you've heard it said, do not commit murder. And he says, but if you've got anger in your heart towards somebody, you've already committed it. Why do I suddenly go, yeah, I've been there. I'm a murderer. Why does that happen? Why do we do the things that we do? Well, that's the next point, which is very simple. Sin is bad. The law is good and sin is bad. Again, unlike those in our culture who would tell us that law is the problem, Paul said the law is not the problem because it's good. The problem is our sin is bad. According to God and Paul, once sin is revealed, the moment law walks in the door. Notice how Paul put this in verses 8 and verse 11, and he used a very interesting phrase. Sin, seizing an opportunity. You see the sinister, deceitful attitude behind sin. Seizing an opportunity. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead, or dormant is a, a better word. Verse 11 For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. Notice, it wasn't the law or the commandment that killed us. It was sin through using the commandment. So what Paul says is something fascinating. When the commandment came to not covet, sin rose to the occasion, seized the moment, and produced all kinds of covetousness. And sin deceived me using the commandment, thinking it was life, when it was really, that, that sin was bringing death. It produced in me all kinds of coveting, things that the law didn't even describe, I coveted even further than that, and killed me by disobeying the command. What's interesting, the way that Paul talks about sin in this passage, you're going to notice something. It's one of the moments where Paul personifies sin, he makes it look like another person in the room. And the way he talks about it is like sin is lying dormant until the law shines its light. One way that I thought of it this week was just like a black panther stealthily hiding in the corner of a room waiting to pounce upon that which is forbidden. The issue isn't the law The problem is that sin always wants what God has forbidden. Always. And it lies dormant until the law is given. When the law is given, sin, like that black panther, jumps to immediately disobey. That's what sin does. Now, if you're a parent, you you know exactly what I'm talking about. I, I was... I think through several moments of our parenting, when our kids were little in particular, and we were training them about what obedience was. Training them to obey. I don't know if you know this or not. You have to train your kids to obey, not disobey. All right. I mean, that's just the realities, right? I mean, so I remember one time with one of our uh, children, she was about 18 months old, and I was sitting at the table with her, holding her, and I put a pen out on the table, and I just said... I won't give her name out. I just said, "Sweetie, don't don't touch that pin." And with her beautiful blue eyes batted, smiled and reached out for that pin. And I just grabbed her hand back and said, "Hey, baby, don't Daddy said don't touch." She got this pouty look on her face. She stuck her little lip and she whole time like she just slid her hand up. <laughs> Now, here's the question. Was the command I gave her wrong? Was it sinful? Was it bad? No. But the moment I told her, don't touch, she could not get her mind off of it. That pin became like a million dollars sitting at the table. I can't wait to touch it. That's how sin works. And we all know this. We all know it. When you were younger, or maybe right now, you can think of this, your parents would tell you, I really don't want you hanging out with that kid. And what did you want to do? You thought of ways of how you're going to get out of the house to go hang out with that kid. Or you know that you're not supposed to look at certain websites. Yet the moment you get on the Internet, what do you want to do? Sin is at work in you. Your boss tells you that you can't deal with something the way that you want to deal with it. And what do you want to do? We call it independence. (laughs) Scripture would call it sin. When God commands anything, our sin, seizing the moment, lying dormant, Wants to pounce on what is forbidden. It does it the moment it's given. That's how sin acts. So for Paul and for God, the problem is not the law. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You name don't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden. I mean, can't you imagine that moment? You know what happened. Adam, don't do that. And Adam just could not get his eyeballs off that. I wonder what that's going to taste like. We've all known this. The problem is our sin is bad. We naturally in our sin want what we cannot have. Now, what this shows us in Romans 7 is the exceeding sinfulness of our sin. See, if you don't understand this about your sin, then you're just going to keep giving into it. It's deceitful, it is sinister. It lies dormant and quiet and lurking and waiting for the right moment. Then when the commandment is given, it acts. And then when it acts, it lies to you saying, has God really said? And then you eat or partake and it brings death. <clears throat> That's Paul's point. It's not the law that is bad. It's us. It's not the law that brings death. It's our sinful disobedience to the law that brings death. See, this is where our culture misses the point altogether. Because the culture believes we are inherently good. That we, we will if lift to ourselves. We will treat others kindly. We will love one another. We will do everything possible to make everything better in our world. And then suddenly 2020 hits and that deal up in Seattle happens. Everybody says, lockdown, no police, let's just rule ourselves. Within three days, there's a murder. Why? Because in ourselves, we are naturally depraved, and our sin is exceedingly sinful. But our culture doesn't want to hear that. We are inherently good. We'll do the right thing without law. We don't need law. Law makes us feel bad. The reason why law makes us feel bad is because we are. So the question is, okay, if the law is good and sin is bad, then what what do we have to deal with in our world? Why is it that we keep struggling with the same sins over and over again? And that's our third and last point, which is Christ is our hope. Pretty simple outline, right? The law is good. Sin is bad. Christ is our hope. See, here's the challenge that you face as a Christian. By faith, if you're a child of God, you are united with Christ in his life, his death, and his resurrection. Which means that God relates with you and interacts with you on the basis of what Jesus did, not on the basis of what you do or don't do. God's eternal relationship with you is based on what Christ did. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 1, we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places In Christ Jesus, God relates with you on the basis of your union with Christ. And in this union with Christ, you have died to the power and penalty of sin, and you've been raised to live in a brand new way. We've been set free from the demand of perfect obedience to God's law, and we're set free from the condemnation that our sin rightfully deserves. And since those things are true... Why do we keep blowing it? Those things are true. Why do we keep sinning? Why do we keep treating our spouses poorly? Why do we get angry with our kids? Why do we get jealous of a coworker? Why do we struggle with selfish ambition and pride and immorality and greed and all the various things that may go on? What is our hope? What What is there to help us? And the beauty of this text is Paul, Paul is going to show us this. I mean, That's his point in verses 15 through the end of the chapter. See if you don't find yourself in verses 15 through 23. Notice how Paul writes this. He says that he doesn't understand his own actions, but he does the things he hates. You ever done that? He says he has a desire to do what was right, but it just doesn't seem like he has the ability to carry it out. He says he doesn't do the good things that he wants to do, but he keeps on doing evil things. Sinister things, awful things. He says he delights in the law of God in his inner being, but he sees another law going to work in his, the members of his body. And he says all this is happening because sin indwells, is still active. It still dwells within him. Every time he wants to do the right thing, it's like sin is right at his elbow holding him back. You ever felt this way? You ever struggle with that? You ever walked away from a moment of sin and was like, I don't know what I just did here. Well, guess what? You know what the Apostle Paul is telling you in Romans 7? You're not alone. You realize who's writing this. Next to Jesus, probably the greatest Christian in the history of the world. And he's saying something remarkably comforting. I'm with you. I know exactly what you're dealing with because I'm going through the same thing. It's almost like Paul pulls up a chair, invites you into his living room right next to his candle as he's writing things. He says, come on, come over here. Listen, our union with Christ is amazing. We're at peace with God through Jesus. We have access to the glory of God through Jesus. In Jesus, we've died to sin's authority and penalty. We're not controlled by sin anymore. The demand for God's perfection is no longer hanging over us because Jesus was perfect for us. But listen to me very closely, Christian friend. The presence of sin will remain with you while you live on this earth. And it will be a daily momentary struggle the long, as long as you live on this planet. You're going to do things that you hate. You're going to want to do the right thing, yet constantly feel the wind of sin in your face holding you back. And you know what? I know, I know what you're going through. You know why? I'm a fellow struggle with you. I mean, can you, can you hear the great apostle talking to you? Can you hear the greatest Christian next to Jesus talking to you about your daily struggle? I mean, I, I read these words, I'm like, was Paul in my bathroom this morning? But, but better yet, can you, can you hear the God of the universe talking to you? These are the words of God talking. About the daily struggle of a Christian whom he loves, whom he has set apart, whom he has sent his son to die for, and over whom there is no condemnation. And this God says, I know something about you. You're going to do things you hate, and you're going to not do things you know you're supposed to do. You're going to delight of my law in the inner man, and you're going to see weird things happen in your body. I totally give you, and I'm with you. That's what this God is saying to you. Do you hear your God talking to you? These are not the words of a man like Paul given in to his sin. These are words of a man who is battling against his sin. And this battle is hard. It's hard. This is why Paul says that he does the things he hates. If Paul said, I do the things I embrace, and I know they're sinful against God, that'd be a whole other thing. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul says, I'm doing the things I hate, and I delight in the law of God in my inner man. These are the words of a Christian. The Christian has an internal battle with the presence of sin. And as a Christian united with Christ, we're never at peace with our sin. We're at war with it. As long as we live in a Genesis 3 world, listen friends, sin will be a constant friction against us. And I've talked with many of you in our church who say, man, Dave, I don't get it, man. I don't understand why I do the things I do. I don't get my actions. I'm, I'm struggling to wonder, am I really a child of God because I've had battles with certain sins? And my response is, if you are not battling sin, you should question your salvation experience. But if you are recognizing it and you're battling it, then praise God, the Spirit of God is at work in you. Sin will be like someone grabbing your elbow, pulling you back. It will be constantly like running with a parachute attached to you. And you know these moments, right? I mean, we, we know we need to pick up our Bibles and read them just to get to know our God. And, and, and something always seems to come up. I mean, you know how deceitful your sin is, right? I mean, it's this subtle moment, right? You haven't, you, you think, I need to have my devotions today. You decide to do it and you fall asleep. And then one of your kids turns on Top Gun and you're wide awake. Why? Well, Top Gun's way better than reading your Bible, right? According to your sin, right? I mean, we all know that feeling. We know we should share the gospel, but the moment just never seems right. We know we should show hospitality, but something always better seems to come up. We know we shouldn't listen to that gossip, but it was just so interesting. See, in this Genesis 3 world, Sin is always right at your side. And Paul personifies it. Paul pictures it like you will an adversary standing right next to you, constantly just holding you back. And what what we see in Romans 7 is Paul knew of this. We see that God knows of this struggle. The question for you as a Christian, do you know it? So you can see the activity of sin when it happens, but are you aware of the presence of sin before sin ever acts? And it's discouraging, isn't it? You give in, it's hard, and you think, man, there's no way I can, I don't even know how to navigate through this. But notice Paul's ending words in this chapter that reveal to us the incredible hope of your Savior. Paul doesn't stop with the hard battle. Paul Paul points us somewhere. He doesn't just tell us the battle is real and the battle is hard. He tells us that our Savior is stronger and our Savior is better. He says in verse 24 and 25, Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. See, what Paul sees is reality. Our union with Christ is not some pipe dream of a for, of some foreign utopia that has no impact on our present day life. No, our union with Christ deals with real life. It deals with a daily struggle against sin, and it brings Paul to one conclusion. This daily battle that we have brings him to one conclusion, and you see what it is? Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me? Paul sees this battle daily. And what does he come to? Not, oh my word, I can't believe I do such a thing. Paul says, do you see what a wretch I am? I guarantee if we sat down with Paul, he would be the most transparent guy in the room. Hey man, didn't you murder some people? Hey, let me tell you, you barely know this. I mean. I've not only murdered people, but here's all my story. This is all the sin that God forgave me. It's all the battle that I struggle with daily. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will set me free? See, our daily struggle with sin should remind us that we are spiritually unable to fight without something helping us. Without someone coming alongside. It's like a toddler fighting a giant. And we are in desperate need of help. And Paul says, who will deliver me? And notice what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, with an exclamation mark. Paul's yelling at this point like I am. Okay, I mean, he's yelling. Right? He's he's. This is, if you're texting a friend here, you say, Paul, stop yelling at me. He'll be yelling at you. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Listen, the daily battle with your sin, the daily battle with the presence of sin should drive you to Christ, not to despair. You can feel Paul's worship jump off the page. You can feel Paul embracing Christ's power and listen, also embracing his own weakness. And this drives him to cling to Christ. And it should do the same in us. In Christ, listen. You have this dual nature going on in you that you got to do some business with. At the same time, you're right with God, treated by God as if you perfectly obeyed God, just like Jesus. Yet, on a daily basis, you have the presence of sin trying to dominate you, and to have you struggle with it every day of your life. That's our reality. We are at the same time justified before God through Jesus while yet struggling with sin every single day. And our reality as Christians is this, only in Christ, only in Christ, have we been delivered from the power and authority of sin. And yet while sin's presence remains, its power and control over us do not. You are not helpless in Christ You have been given power to overcome your sin. And only in Christ has he delivered us from the demands of perfection to the law. Our sin, after we fail, what does it want to do? It wants to bring us to condemnation. But in Christ, after we fail, there is no condemnation because the law has been satisfied. Rather, there is a gracious, merciful, forgiving God that you run to on a regular basis because you have access to this God. You have a friend and a king and a master who loves you more than you can ever imagine and forgives you more than you could ever dream. That is amazing news. In Christ, we have the present deliverance from sin's power and penalty, and we've been released from the law's demands. And listen, we have hope that one day, listen, one day, one day, one day, Genesis 3 world is no more. One day, the freedom, the final freedom from the presence of sin will be dealt with. One day, your king will say, enough. Enough. One day in Christ, you will be finally free. But today's not that day. Leon Morris, I think, put it best when he wrote this. i answers it with the joyful shout. Speak to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The victory is God's, and He gives it to Christ. It is Paul's consistent teaching that God in Christ has supplied all our need and will continue to do so. What good news that is. Paul clearly, Paul's words express gratitude for present deliverance. But it is likely they also have an eschatological or future significance. The deliverance we have today is wonderful. But listen, it is partial and it is incomplete. It is but a first installment of greater things to come. And Paul looks forward to that great day with his burst of thanksgiving. So listen, Christian, child of God, your reality is not perfection. Your reality right now is your daily struggle against your sin. Listen, with the power of Christ at your disposal. You can consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. Even though daily you're going to have this battle. And your reality is is that God's demand for you is not that you would be perfect. Because Christ's perfection is already accredited to you. And that means when you sin, listen clearly, you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to somehow pay God back. That now you're going to up your tithe check. Hoping that God will one day go, okay, enough's enough, we're good. You don't have to do what Adam and Eve did, trying to cover what you have done. No, here's what you can do. In this union with Christ, you can run to your God. You can confess and agree with him about what you have done. And listen to these words. He will be faithful and just to forgive you of all your sin. And then you get up from your chair and you go live your life in the power of Christ. In Christ, God is calling you back to him. Do you hear your God after you've blown it this week, not standing over you in shame, but standing over you in love saying, would you please come back? And listen, if you're not a Christian, this isn't your reality. The law of God is revealing to you your sin. And your sin is sending you straight to judgment before God. You are still underneath the law's demands for perfection. But you can be set free from this. By putting your faith in Christ. Believing that Jesus truly came and lived in your place, died in your place, rose again from the dead, and is right now seated at God's right hand. You you can be set free. Only in Christ can you have this promise. Listen, Romans 7 is given to us to show us that the law is good. (laughs) Our sin is bad. And Christ is our only hope. Let's pray. Father, the conviction in the room is palpable because all of us can think of many ways as Christians that we struggle with the daily presence of sin. We even did it this morning. Some of us did it right now. And we, you, you through this text are calling your people to you. And so we come. And we confess and agree with you about our sins. So church right now, before your God, confess and agree with God about your sin. Do that privately at your seat. Lord, we confess our pride. We confess our jealousy. We acknowledge that our selfish ambition has gotten in the way. We acknowledge our immorality. We confess our drunkenness, our addictions. We lay these before you. And we thank you for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. But we also thank you that we have been raised to live differently. And so, Father, help us to put on humility to put on soberness, to put on love for others, to put on a love for Christ, to put on forgiveness by the power of your Spirit at work within us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't hold the law's demands of perfection over us anymore because we just can't. We can't be perfect. And we say it, we wretched people that we are. And we thank you that deliverance is found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I pray for our non-Christian friends that are here. We're so glad they're listening or here this morning. And we pray that you would help them to see the glories of God in the face of Jesus that they are under bondage to their sin. They are under the law of sin and death, and we ask you, Father, to free them, to open their eyes to believe in this great Savior, Jesus. Convince them of the truth, and bring them to repentance. And Lord, we put our hope in this life, and the next, in Jesus. And we thank you that you are absolutely faithful to do all that you promised in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to Cherishing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.